they say that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting a different result. And as such, it is reasonable, I'd say, to suggest that Mike Sullivan should try something different as well this coming winter. Good morning to you. Good Tuesday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports. This is Daily Shot of Penguins. It comes your way bright and early every weekday if you're into football and or baseball. I also offer Daily Shots of Steelers and Pirates where you found this. The strategy, and I'm going to underscore here that that term is singular, that Sullivan has put in place over the years has been a very good one for this franchise and for the individual editions of this hockey team. In fact, the roster itself has been to some extent, not completely, tailored to that strategy. And you don't need me to explain to you what that strategy is. You've seen it for years now. The Penguins chase the puck. They want the puck at all quadrants of the rink. They want multiple sticks, not just two, multiple sticks on every puck when they don't have it. They have to get it back. And once they have it, they want to keep it. From there, Sullivan reasons, usually correctly, that the offense will take care of itself because he's got guys on the upper half of that roster who can make some pretty serious plays. So even if all of his players aren't Selkie candidates or Norris candidates, they're going to be able to understand the very simple concept of putting themselves in the right position to get the puck and then from there to keep the puck. Sounds great, right? Sounds infallible. Sounds like something anyone can understand and follow through on. And that's been the foundation of its success. However, however, I'm also old enough to remember that this past season, this particular hockey team blew a lot of leads and they really blew them in the playoffs. And while I've been the first one to point to the AHL level goaltending that they got, I'm also not going to be the only one to remember that in game seven, they had Tristan Jari out there. And Jari was playing well, and they still blew a lead in Game 7. Two-goal lead in Game 5. Two-goal lead in Game 6. And this problem wasn't new to the playoffs. It wasn't new to Louis Domingue being forced into the crease. This was something that was there throughout the year. And my belief is that this head coach and his associate coach, Todd Reardon, would do well to come up with a late game or third period plan B approach. Everyone would benefit from it. And my goodness, would it throw the Penguins opponents, especially those in the Metro division, a curve. This portion of Daily Shot of Penguins is brought to you by the good people at the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank, where they're committed to providing food for all of our neighbors in need across Western Pennsylvania. They, in turn, need your help. Find out how $1 can be turned into five full meals. For those in need, visit pittsburghfoodbank.org. So what does that look like? What what does a, a plan B look like? Is it the 96 Devils skating backward and wiggling their sticks in the neutral zone? Is it the Jacques Lemaire version of the Minnesota Wild when they came into the league? Remember that? They were even more boring than the Devils. No, it's not any of that. Sullivan does have 
a modified form of the neutral zone trap. You've seen it. You might not want to have seen it, but you've seen it. And that is when the Penguins have completely lost possession. There's a clear loss of possession in the defensive zone, maybe even a line change that goes with it. When the Penguins realign, they do so in what looks like a clothesline out in the neutral zone. It's a right across the red. You'll see forwards just standing there waiting for the other team to come up ice. This is some form of the trap. It's not a good one. And part of the reason for that is that the players aren't very good at it. So even when you see the Penguins going into a trap, oh, yeah, here they go. They're going to kill this time off the clock. They, They probably won't. I have seen Evgeny Malkin skating backward in the neutral zone and waiting for the other team to come up the rink. It's not a pretty sight. They don't have a forward go and chase the initial puck carrier, so they're not doing things to force the initial puck carrier to throw the puck where they want it to go and where they think they'll intercept it. That's what the actual neutral zone trap is. The Penguins don't do that. They just kind of move backward, you know, and that's not necessarily good enough. One of the things that you can do with an experienced roster, call them old, whatever, with an old roster, is you can teach them new tricks because they're really smart, they're really experienced, and they're already instinctively inclined to follow the system that you already have in place. They can do multiple systems. Do you remember Dan Bilesma later on in his tenure was doing a bunch of this sort of stuff? It were all real egghead stuff. And he probably went a little bit too far with it because then you lose some of that sense of uh, speed and creativity that you always want your players to have in this beautiful sport. But Bilesma was not afraid of, like this, switching systems on the fly. Sullivan's more guarded about it because he sees, I think, this is just an opinion on my end, he sees anything that's an infraction on his system, his core methodology for the way he wants his players to play as being something that signifies a lack of belief in that system. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Sullivan can still work with Reardon, work with Mike Vellucci, work with his team leaders and say, listen, let's try something a little bit different this year. Let's get these leads. Let's go ahead and do our thing. But once we have them, let's make damn sure we take it home. And the way to do that, in some occasions, will vary. If you're facing a team, for example, that you probably should be leading, like, uh, I don't know, not to pick on anybody here, but a Coyotes or somebody, go ahead and do your thing. If you see that they can't get possession off you and your possession system is nailing their backs to the wall, go nuts. You don't have to change a thing. But if you're facing a team that, let's say, is really offensive oriented, like probably to a fault, like let's say the Maple Leafs, for example, then you do things a little bit differently. You go ahead and you get your lead because you will get a lead against them because they don't have any goaltending. And they don't have much on the blue line either. And their forwards don't care to back check. So it's really just a perfect mix. They're actually the best example here. So you get a lead on them. And then 
you get to the third period and you go, you know what? Let's just do something totally different because now they think they've got this solved. Those guys are all over there, uh, the, the Toronto coaching staff, figuring out ways to bust through what it is that we're doing. And we're just going to totally give them something completely different. It won't be until the fourth or fifth line rotation that they even see what's hit them. That'd be a pretty cool thing for this team to absorb and really accept, I think, embrace at this phase of this core's age. When we come back, J1Q. comes from Ed, who says, I would say that if you're going to retire Evgeny Malkin's number, you would surely retire Chris Letang's. In fact, if both retired today, I'd be happy if they retired Letang's number and not Malkin's. Every year, Letang has improved, made fewer mistakes, and he's been a lot more durable than Malkin. How do you not retire the number of the greatest defensemen in franchise history? Ed was one of many who responded on the various platforms where this show ends up regarding my commentary yesterday about Latang's status, uh, whether that's retired number, statue, Hall of Fame, all the stuff that usually comes up whenever you're talking about legitimately great players. And Latang is a legitimately great player. Anyone who cared past tense, to argue that sort of thing, really kind of fizzled out a couple of years ago. Now, he's now crossed into some special territory. And when you factor into it what Ed just said, which is that his play has really leveled off, meaning in a good way, in terms of his mistakes and, and all that, uh, it only adds to the legacy because now you can see a future for him. You can see what a Latang will look like over the next three, four years. But I do want to say something here. Half of everybody who responded to this was just obsessed with the occasional mistakes that he makes, the turnovers, the stuff where you go, oh, whatever. Even though he markedly, to repeat this, whacked those down in the 2021-22 season. And that... That displaced me. Uh, how do I say this without really ticking everybody off? That displaced me. I'll just say it. It's just a lack of understanding of the game. Do you know that your best players will always, always be the ones committing the most turnovers? You know why? Because you want them not fearing making the great play. To go back to Sullivan and his emphasis on possession that I was referencing in the opening segment, he has a, a saying, you don't want to take the sticks out of the hands of the great players. And he applies that on a regular basis around these guys, particularly when he's dealing with Gino and Tanger. He wants them to understand that he wants them to try the play that nobody else would try. He just wants it to happen in a responsible area of the rink. So when you see Gino pull up in the offensive zone and try something lateral and it doesn't connect or somebody else makes a really nice interception of it or whatever, or if it just looks completely lunk-headed, 
You have to balance that out with the number of times he executes that play and it gets through and you go, whoa, great play by Gino. You can't have it both ways, my friends. You can't expect them to stick to doing ordinary things and then expect them to be great. And that's part of what's happened with Latang is he continues to do great things, mostly in the offensive zone. But he's managed to find a way to make sure that one way or another, the puck gets out of the Pittsburgh end. That whatever it is that he's going to try, he's not going to try it inside his own end. We've watched truly legendary players in Pittsburgh. You know, Mario Lemieux would turn the puck over, believe it or not. Yarmir Yager would turn the puck over. Neither Mario nor Yager ever saw a back check that they liked, at least not one that wasn't in a playoff game. And for those of us who go back to living through that time, and I covered both of those players, we can also remember that there were people who would criticize them. Yeah, but if only he would get this or that out of his game. That... And this applies to all sports, fades over time, especially once the player is done. You do remember only the good stuff. No one remembers, for example, or at least not at the top of mind, that Ron Francis wasn't much of a skater. Why? Because he was brilliant on the rink. He was just so much smarter than almost everybody else out there. And that's why yesterday's show was about Latang's legacy. That was the term that I kept using. It was about his legacy. It's the way he's going to be remembered. Believe you me, when Latang is done, he gets his thousand points. He runs up his career total to the, to the stage where nobody's going to be able to pass him. And he's getting recognized and honored on the ice with standing ovations and all that other stuff. There won't be two or three people in that arena thinking to themselves, yeah, but all those times he turned the puck over. I appreciate the question. I appreciate everyone listening to Daily Shot of Penguins. We'll do another one of these tomorrow.